0: One of the aspects of life that this world provides that I really enjoy, although not very often these days, is a good Broadway show. I'm a big fan of those. I enjoy the excitement of live theater and music. If you were to ask me in terms of saving money, would you rather watch four movies in a year or save that money and watch a Broadway show, the answer is A show, because they cost about the same, four movies and a show. If you've ever watched a show, and some of them are shown on television now, so you can even watch them pre-recorded, perform live on your television set, you understand that these musicals all have a story. Like any good novel or movie, there's a story The story is built upon, and then, of course, you anticipate and expect and then enjoy the final number, the grand finale, when everything, despite all the wonders you have already seen in the last hour and a half, they come to a great crescendo at the very end with a song or dialogue that explains everything and brings everything to finality much like the Bible. You read the Bible. If you were to read the Bible from cover to cover, you read the Old Testament and you read wonder after wonder. You think you've hit the the highest peak of amazement in God and His provision and His grace and His power, and then you hit another story. And then you hit the Gospels and you're blown away. You're driven to your knees in humility as you understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Majesty after majesty, and yet you know that there is more to come. And then you get to the very end in Revelation. Foreshadowed thus far throughout the Bible, you get to Revelation and you come to the grand finale the great crescendo of human history and the plan of God. And you are once again blown away that God could do such wonderful, amazing, miraculous things. And we know that this is yet to be. It is yet to come. It has begun, but it has not been finished. And this wonderful truth we see this morning As we continue looking at 1 Corinthians as we've been studying it for a year and a half, verse by verse, this morning we come to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 through 28. Would you turn there with me? And by way of reminder, we are looking at the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, yes, but the future full harvest of resurrections and that all believers will one day be resurrected in bodily form. And this is what Paul is arguing for. This is what Paul has been explaining throughout First Corinthians 15. And part of that, the resurrections, is key to eschatology, the study of the end times, the final days. And we've come into that section and we see again in verses 25 through 28, a continued elaboration of the end. Paul writes, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him so that God may be all in all. I understand they can be a little confusing because we're using pronouns. I'll clarify those in a minute. Our outline for this morning, four glorious movements in the timeline of the end. Four glorious movements... In the timeline of the end. Again, we're getting a snapshot, a brief summary, an overview. And our first glorious movement in the timeline of the end is the reign of the Redeemer. The reign of the Redeemer. We find this in verse 25. I'll read that for you again. It says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And Paul introduces this section that we're looking at this morning with the word for. Sometimes when we study verse by verse, we can lose sight of the forest for the trees. And when we're given little clues like for or but or therefore, we understand that it is all connected. The for shows us that these verses we're going to look at this morning explain what we saw last week in verse 24, which says, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. In other words, by starting this section with the word for, Paul ex- is explaining why all of these events mentioned in verse 24 must happen. Why, Paul? Let me explain. To do this, Paul begins by taking what is, taking rather what is spoken of God in Psalm 110, verse 1. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 6, and attributes it to Christ. Now, both of these psalms speak of God's enemies being placed under His feet. Psalm 110 says, as a footstool. This is such a powerful and familiar analogy that both psalms are referenced also in Ephesians 1 and Hebrews 2. But what does this all mean? In verse 24, we saw that Jesus will abolish all His enemies. Satan, yes, but also the world system with all its individuals, governments, organizations, movements, and powers that oppose him. And then he says, they will all be put under his feet. And this brings out the full implications of that word abolished that we unpacked in verse 24, and it speaks of Jesus Christ's total victory and supremacy, It is complete. After it happens, there will be no doubts. There will be no contesting. There will be no second chances. There will be no questions. He is and will be the undisputed victor, the undisputed Lord. Back in Paul's day and throughout ancient history, various rulers, such as kings or emperors, would sit on a throne. You've seen this depicted in various places. But you probably also notice that there are steps leading up to that throne. The throne was on a platform that was higher than everyone else. And this was on purpose. This was to show the power and the rule and significance of whoever was sitting on that throne so that they could look down on their subjects, whomever it was that was speaking to them. But more importantly... As we see so often on the TV screen, when those subjects would bow, their heads would be lower than his feet. The one who is bowing would have his head lower than the feet of the king. This was significant. This was important to them to show their majesty and their power. Then in war back then, a king, after defeating the enemy army, the opposing army, would often find the king or the general of that nation whom he has defeated and would put his foot on their leader's neck, symbolizing total subjection of that defeated king and all that they represented. This is the picture of God that Paul is using here regarding all of Christ's enemies. And when this ultimate victory occurs, it will be such that the power of God's enemies will be utterly broken and for eternity. They shall never again rise up. Never again to lift a finger against the king of kings or even murmur an offending whisper their destruction will be absolute. When will this all take place? We don't know the exact day, but we are given clues in this verse as to the general outline. We saw last week that this is at the end of the world as we know it. Eschatology, which is simply the study of the end things, the end times. And in verse 25, we foresee that he must reign until this time. He must reign. It is not an option. It is not an option because of the Father's sovereign plan, which culminates with supreme victory. It is absolutely necessary that the Son reign until all enemies are vanquished. And the must literally means it is necessary. This doesn't only indicate necessity according to the plan, but also the fact that nothing will hinder this plan. Nothing can thwart the will and purposes of God, which includes the how and the when of all of this. The word reign simply means to rule. Christ must rule. He must carry out the duties of a king. And since the plan involves the turning over of a completely redeemed kingdom as we talked about last week, Jesus must reign until that day when He has completed His work of redemption and renewal. Then He will hand over this renewed kingdom to the Father. Now again, we don't know when this will happen. But Christian, you can rest assured that it is coming. It must. Put all of this together, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. What a glorious day that will be. You know, sometimes for us it can be hard to know when something is going to end, especially when it's something that is difficult. And we know that this world order the forces, the powers, the pressures, our own sin is coming to an end. But it's hard to know that it hasn't come yet. It's on the horizon, yes, but we don't know how long that will be. And it can be hard to wait on God's timing for such things. Not just hard in that we wrestle with the, with the world and we say, how long, O oh Lord? How long? How long? But also, as I mentioned before, we sang our hymn, we can become content. We can become so enmeshed and enamored with this world that God and His coming and His ultimate victory and the deadly dangers of this world are just something on the side. Yes, we acknowledge it. We understand it theologically. But we lose our fervor in battling it. And our hunger and hope for that day when he returns. But when we come often, like we will today, to the Lord's table, when we truly evaluate our lives, when we hear the word of God or read it, we recognize, we recognize that we are so surrounded by sin that sometimes it can be stifling. It can be suffocating. We feel like we're drowning. We're drowning in obligations. We're drowning in expectations. And at the same time, we are constantly, constantly tempted by sin and giving in to that sin more often than we'd like to admit. But rest assured, my friends, there is a day coming when all of this will be done away. So just wait, pray, be faithful. And understand that victory is coming and if you are a believer this morning, you are part of that victory. Because irony of ironies of that victor assured victory for us. We must trust the Lord for His timing, rest assured of His victory, but never become so satisfied in this world that we forget to fight, to fight our own sin, to fight for God's kingdom to preach the word. Speaking of his victory, there is one specific enemy that Paul mentions. Dozens, if not thousands, if not millions of people and organizations and forces fall under what is considered his enemy and yet he takes the time to specify one specific enemy and that leads to our second glorious movement in the timeline of the end. The destruction of death. The destruction of death. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. The verse and point are really a subpoint of verse 25, but it is so significant that Paul makes it a separate point. I want to make it a separate point in our outline this morning. When you think of destruction, right? when you think of someone you dislike and you want that enmity to end. Or you think of war or wars in the past and you say this is this person or this nation's enemy. They will destroy that enemy. You think of things like buildings, soldiers, military bases, armor, individuals. You don't think of the end of Death. Death isn't even a physical object that you can blow up or hammer down. And once again, we are reminded that when we're talking about God, we are talking about an entirely different sphere of power. He will destroy death. His power is not merely found in that He can destroy the most powerful of people and nations. His power is found in that He can and will destroy. Do away with death. Whose death? Death, period. Not revive an individual, but death will be no more. No one will ever die again. Look at the verse. When all other enemies, which verse 24 summarizes as all rule, all authority, and power, are defeated. There will no longer be any physical enemies of God left, but there will be the reality of death. And the last enemy, but an enemy nonetheless, so it will be dealt with. And in reference to this defeat, Paul uses the same word that he did in verse 24, the word abolished or destroyed, if you have the ESV or NIV, and rightly so. Because death is certainly among the enemies classified as rule, authority, and power, there's definitely a strong power. As we saw last week, the word abolish means render ineffective. If we could it can be translated into the English dethrone, overthrow, annul, destroy. And additionally, the word conveys a sense of certainty. This will happen. This has to happen because until death is abolished, God's purposes are not fully realized. That's very important to understand. God's will for mankind, God's plan, which involves sending His Son to live and die and rise again, they are not fully realized until death is abolished. And to be clear, when talking about the necessity of the reign of Christ that we saw in our last point, that reign is not complete until death is conquered. So, How is death defeated? We've been looking at it for several weeks. Death is defeated in resurrection. The process began with Christ's resurrection. It ends with our resurrections. It is in our resurrections that death disappears because we will be in bodies that will never die again. Death becomes obsolete. Not like someone... Whose heart stops beating, and they put the paddles on his chest, and it starts beating again. That individual will die again one day. Lazarus died again one day. But we, again, going back, our resurrection will be the same kind and character of Jesus Christ, never to die again in glorified bodies. Now we understand that in this life we are already victorious because of the gospel. The gospel grants us victory, but that is not fully attained or revealed until death is completely and forever abolished. Because even right now, in your surety of salvation and heaven and forgiveness of sins, you understand that you will die. And you will watch people die. It helps to remember why death exists in the first place. Sin. And in the gospel, we have victory over sin through the washing of those sins, but we still sin. And sin still exists in this world. In our resurrected bodies, we will be in a glorified state in which there can be no sin. So reverse the formula, no sin, no death, resurrection. To be more specific, death is also dependent upon Satan. And since he too will be abolished, so will sin and death. By the way, this also answers the question of whether what happened in the Garden of Eden can happen again in the new earth. Well, we're all there. God is walking with us. No sin. But what if someone sins again and everything repeats all over? This cannot happen again, because we will be in resurrected bodies, and there will be no tempter, which means no sin, no ability to sin, and no death. And when we understand the vital connection between death and sin, then we understand that Christ's victory over it doesn't just deal with the sadness or fear of death, it's so much more. It is the culmination of the resurrection harvest. It is the guarantee that His victory at the cross is eternal. And it is the consummation of the fullness of God's plan. Turn with me to the end of your Bibles to Revelation 21. Revelation 21 verses 3 through 5 speak of this. Revelation 21. Starting in verse 3, in his vision, it says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Verse 4, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Write it down. It's a done deal. And earlier in Revelation 20 and verse 4, it says that death itself is thrown into the eternal lake of fire. Should the Lord tarry, we will all die someday. We will all die someday but we will one day be resurrected to never die again. For those of you who can remember, did you enjoy taking the SATs? Was that fun for you? Pleasant? The job you now have or that you retired from was the interview to get that job one of the highlights of your life? Maybe after when they called and offered you the job. But did you enjoy that? The clammy hands, the... Sweating, the first time you ever wore a suit. Good experience for you? That surgery that cured you, did you enjoy that surgery? You're looking forward to it? Hoping you're one of those lucky few who awake under anesthesia and hear and feel everything? You see, whether it's an exam, an interview, or medical procedure, once you're in, hired, or cured, that difficult experience will never happen again. It was scary, it was difficult, it was unpleasant for you as well as for your loved ones. But it will never happen again. And depending on the timing of the rapture, most, if not all of us, will die someday. It is scary, it may be difficult, it will be unpleasant. But once you die, you will never die again. Not because we are annihilated or destroyed or just cease to be. Because we will live again forever. Never to die again, not in a scientific or atheistic meaning, but because we will live. We will live forever. Our physical death in this world is not the end. But death itself will end. But for us, death is the beginning. It's the beginning of something special. It's the beginning of something wonderful, something that was always meant to be. And I might add that we are talking about the plan of God and our adherence to it, our trust and hope in it. That little thought, that little question, whether you're thinking it for yourself or just as a theological debate, in understanding the plan of God, we are to be faithful here on earth and do nothing to usher death and that wonders that come with it. Be faithful today and trust, hope, and be joyful in the reality that death is not the end, but the beginning. Point number three. We're looking at four glorious movements in the timeline of the end. Number three, the totality of triumph. The totality of triumph. Verse 27 for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. As I mentioned earlier, this can be a little confusing with all the he's and hymns. Let's start with the first phrase, which is saying, I'm just going to say the verse again, but throw in proper names, proper nouns. God the Father has put all things in subjection under the feet of the Son, Jesus Christ. It's the first sentence there. This quote comes from the psalm that Dennis read for us earlier, Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, God's incredible and majestic work in creation is being praised. It alludes to Genesis 1, Psalm 8 does, specifically verses 26 through 30, and there God tells man, the first man, Adam, that he is over all the plants and animals of the earth, as well as the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. And in Psalm 8, the psalmist, David, refers to God creating man in his image, then being given dominion over all creation. Throughout the psalm, however, including the bookends of the first and last verses, God is praised for his dominion over creation. In this morning's passage, Paul applies all of this that is spoken of Adam to Jesus Christ, the one who fulfills God's plan for mankind. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, Psalm 8 is quoted more substantially in Hebrews 2, and makes the messianic connection very clear. To put, this all, put all of this together, the dominion of man over creation is fulfilled for us through Jesus Christ. The dominion of man over creation is fulfilled for us through Jesus Christ. Because you understand that we are the height and top of creation in the created order, there is enmity between us and creation. You live up in the hills and Milbrae or wherever, don't pet that mountain lion, right? Sin brought that enmity. Before, there was no enmity between us and God and us and any animal. The snakes didn't bite, the carnivores weren't carnivores. But in Jesus Christ, all of it is fulfilled. Back to 1 Corinthians. To put in subjection means to make subordinate or bring under control. Again, we see the picture of all things being under the feet of Jesus Christ. And even though this is the role of the Son within the plan of the Father, we see the Godhead working together here. Christ will not present the kingdom to the Father until all enemies have been abolished. Yet we see here that it is the Father who puts all things in subjection, under the feet of Jesus Christ. And this subjection is universal, as indicated by the phrase, all things. There is, of course, as the verse mentions, one exception, the Father himself will not be subjected to Jesus Christ. Look at the second sentence in the verse. But when he says, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. For sake of clarity, let me again fill in the pronouns. But when the Father says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection to the Son. Father, Father, Son. God the Father cannot subject Himself to another. Again, all three members of the Godhead are equal, But they have different roles. God the Father remains the ultimate source and goal of all of this plan. Whereas God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the means by which the Father's goal is brought to fruition. He submits to the Father as the Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son, yet they are all equal. This is hard to grasp, not because of Scripture, but because society tells us different roles means inequality. That's not a biblical truth. In this plan, Christ is clearly sovereign and all-powerful. But that never infringes upon the sovereignty and power of the Father. And the point here is that Christ's triumph is total. All enemies will be subjected to Him. All created things will be under His rule. But if the Father is exempted because it is His plan then what happens to the Son when the kingdom is completely renewed, His work is finished, at least this part of the plan, and then He hands over that kingdom to the Father? Well, He then takes His rightful place. And let's see what that is in our fourth and final point, the supremacy of the sovereign. Again, we're looking at four glorious movements in the timeline of the end. We've seen the reign of the Redeemer, the destruction of death, the totality of triumph, And finally, the supremacy of the sovereign. Verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Again, let me fill in some proper nouns for you. When all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the Father, who subjected all things to Christ so that God may be all in all. That phrase, when all things are subjected, by the way, I know this gets technical, so try to focus here. I'll try to be as clear as possible. That phrase, when all things are subjected, is simply a summary of all the major events that have happened to this point. In other words, when all rule, authority, and power have been abolished, followed by by the last enemy, death. So that is when all things are subjected. At this point, there is nothing else that can be subjected to Christ. They've all been defeated. Then there will be the renewal of all things, so that all is in harmony with God and His plan and purposes for man and this world. So here's Christ. He has abolished all enemies. He has redeemed mankind, thereby renewing the kingdom for the Father. Christ is on top. So why now subject Himself to the Father? Notice the terminology in the verse. The Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him. In other words, the reason Christ has conquered all is because the Father subjected all those enemies under Christ's feet. God the Father did it. And now Christ is simply subjecting Himself to the One who has been over this whole plan and process all along. The head general may be sent out to conquer the kingdom, but when the kingdom is conquered, he's not king. He comes back and bows his head under the feet of the one on the throne. It was the one on the throne, it was his plan and his purposes that were being carried out by the lead general, in this case, Jesus Christ. Now again, in all of this, keep in mind that they are still equal and together are one God. So this subjection is in no way ontological, which is just a fancy word for their nature, their essence, their being. In fact, Revelation 11.15 makes it clear that Christ will continue to reign for the Son's reign is eternal. He will reign forever and ever, to quote the verse. They're all doing this together, but there is still a subordination within the Godhead. In my salvation, in my essence, in my blood, for all intents and purposes, I am equal with you. Yet, by God's design, I have an authority over you as your pastor and elder. But it doesn't mean we're not equal. We're the same. It's just the role. It's not our essence. Same with children and parents. Same with wives and husbands. We need to understand this, that they are equal, but they have different roles. It might help to hear it this way. Christ's subjection of Himself to the Father refers to their official position and not to their nature, and not to their relationship. They still have equal fellowship with one another. And together with the Holy Spirit, they will reign forever as one God in Trinitarian glory. And all of these things, including the subjection of the Son to the Father, must occur, why? End of the verse, for God the Father to be all in all, meaning that all things will be dependent on Him, and God will be supreme in every way. He is that, again, in nature, but he is not that in a practical way in terms of how people live. He has even sovereignly put the prince of the power of the air, Satan, over this world for the time being. I invite you to turn to Romans 11:36, because as we look at this concept and this verse, it's very helpful to look at it in the context of Romans chapter 11, verse 36. And I want to start back in verse 33 to get the context, understanding that verse 36 of Romans 11 is the key. So Romans 11, verses 33, and then culminating in verse 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. It's all about God. Let me summarize world history Very simply. Man rebelled against God. So the son subjected himself to the father to deal with that rebellion. And when that rebellion is dealt with, all is put back in order as the father willed. John Calvin wrote this. Of course we acknowledge that God is the ruler. But his rule is actualized in the man, Christ. But Christ will then hand back the kingdom which he has received so that we may cleave completely to God. Because God is all in all. You say, I cleave to God now. We just say it. I need the every hour. But you don't cleave completely to God because you're a sinner and your greatest sin problem is your pride. We don't cleave, com- cleave completely because we want. We want things that God doesn't want us to have. We want to do things our way and get the praise of man rather than giving the glory to God. So we cleave especially in trials, but we don't cleave completely. And the goal is that He will be all in all in every sense of that phrase so that the world, the new created order, and all people in that new earth will cleave completely to Him, sinless, perfect, and forever. What does this have to do with resurrection, the context of this whole chapter? When God raised Jesus from the dead, he set in motion a plan that will culminate in the destruction of death, foreshadowed by Christ's resurrection, and God being all in all as he was in eternity past. So he shall be in eternity future. Again, this is just an overview. And it's within the context of resurrections. But Paul gives us a wonderful overview and reminder of what is to come, which should give us a little jolt as to how we should live. I know this is very theological, it can be very technical. And to add to the confusion, I guess sometimes like that final number in that musical, you're like, what are they saying? What's going on? What are they referring to? Because we are not filled in with all the details. Which is okay, and it's within God's plan. We probably wouldn't get it anyways. We don't really get the stuff that He has revealed to us fully. But the confusion or the mystery that is shrouded does not change His faithfulness, His goodness, His love, the reality of the resurrections that are coming. And so we look forward to that day, not just so that we can be living forever in glorified bodies, but all of it. That God is all in all. No more sin. No more enemies. No more pressure. No more, no more need for Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed. All of it. The transformation is complete. There will be nothing negative, nothing sinful, nothing against Christ that can conform us. We are all transformed and conformed to our Savior who will physically be with us forever. Four glorious movements in the timeline of the end. The reign of the Redeemer, the destruction of death, the totality of triumph, and the supremacy of the Of the sovereign. Can I give you a three second practical application of all of this? What does this all mean for you as an individual believer? It's this you're on the winning team. Now act like it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege to know that in the end, You are victorious and we will be part of that victory. We do not need to be ashamed because we are on the winning team. We don't need to hide the gospel because we are on the winning team. We don't need to indulge in worldly sins because we are on the winning team. And Father, may You remind us of that and make that practical for us every day, that we might live boldly, proudly boasting in Christ because the victory is already ours. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.